grateful for their voices and for yours, for the ways that God has called us on this very rainy day to be together. And in some ways, I realize that this is the first act of an all-day experience of church. Uh, as I've said, in some ways, what we celebrate here on Sunday mornings is, is Yates 1.0, as it were. At 5 o'clock tonight, the ongoing, unfolding, and growing youth and children's ministry anchored right here in our neighborhood will gather for a Christmas party. I'm a little concerned that the rain is going to keep some folks away. As we anticipate all that God will do tonight as a way to yoke ourselves together with that ongoing work, I invite you to pray with me as we offer prayers for tonight. Gracious God, we do give you thanks for a roof over our head physically this morning and more broadly, spiritually, as you have called us together into this community of faith, a house of love and of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of peace. And as we celebrate all the good things that you have done and are doing and shall do in Jesus Christ, we recognize that that will be told again tonight as our youth and as our children gather for their Christmas party. Make a way for each and every one to come and to be fed and to be delighted and to be enthralled not only with the gifts that are exchanged the songs that are sung and the friendships that are strengthened but by the amazing news that you have come to us speaking words of comfort of renewal of forgiveness and transformation may it be so this morning may it be so tonight may it be so each and every day of our lives we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be reading uh, these words from the prophet spoken uh, millennia ago. In a time of crisis in the lives of the Israeli community. Right there in the center of things in Jerusalem. This word from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged place a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry out and i said what shall i cry all people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field the grass withers and the flowers fall because of the breath of the lord 
blows upon them. Surely people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Well, as something of an opening thought, I want to remind you that Isaiah was in a situation that, in a sense, no one wants to be in, and that is he is now having to preach to an audience of people who have experienced trauma. And as a result of that trauma, their relationship with God was wounded. And so for this particular group of hearers, God's hiddenness was much easier to recognize than God's presence. And Isaiah's job as he preached that day in part was to point to those places where God is present. And if we can do a bit of that together, recognizing what you have been through, your individual pains, your struggles, your agonies, some that are known and many that you hold so privately. It's easy in our woundedness to see where God isn't than to dare to continue to strain to see where God is. Our theme today is peace. And peace is the lens through which uh, we're going to be reading and the filter through which we're going to be hearing these words of the prophet. And in many ways, they set the stage for our own anticipation of Jesus coming to us at Christmas. And so we have to start where Isaiah starts today, and you can't miss it. This section of Isaiah begins with a word so important, it's repeated. And in the Hebrew language, if it's important, instead of underlining or bold-faced typing, they repeat the word. It comes to us twice. Comfort. Comfort. So in your imaginations, just for a quick minute, when I say that word, comfort, what comes to your mind? It may be a setting that holds you just right, that, that perfect place on the sofa, or the perfect book that feeds your mind, or just the right company to come to you in your loneliness. I have found in my world travels that sometimes comfort comes just hearing your own language when you're half a world away. One time in, in South Thailand, when I was there, part of a mission team, we were serving a village way out in, in the jungle. And as we were serving the village, there was sort of a little store, a little gathering place, community center there in the middle of the village. And I was shocked, shocked when I went in there and there was a University of North Carolina t-shirt on the wall. 
And of all things to provide comfort to me that day, a UNC t-shirt? Just a, a touch of home. You know, comfort is big business, too. Marketers use that word, whether, you know, Columbia Sportswear, Greater Outdoors, Tested Tough for Comfort, or your Tempur-Pedic mattress, Sleep Like Never Before. Tempur-Pedic, life-changing sleep, it says, unbelievable comfort. Crocs, and I think this is something of a lie, but their slogan is, find your fun, feel the comfort. I'm not so sure about that one, but even your soap, dove, dove, the comfort of care. But if comfort stays at that superficial level and it's only about pillows and shoes and the bar of soap, we're only skating on the surface. And we cannot stay there very long. Because even this week, I pondered some questions as people came to me about what comfort might mean. Bijou, as he spoke today about the multinational participation in the Baptist seminary in India, when I had the privilege of going and visiting there and talking to some of the Burmese Christians who had come from Myanmar all the way down to Kerala, kind of making their way through difficult terrain through overgrown forests and jungles, getting on a train and riding for three days, going without food, going without water, all that time just to get to a place where they can be responsibly trained for Christian ministry. What does comfort mean for them? That little child cowering in a closet in Israel on October 7th hoping and praying that the masses who were swarming through the village would pass by. Or the Palestinian child the next week cowering in a closet as the inevitable retaliation came. Talked to a single parent this week who is already anticipating having to live alone in the house until after Christmas because of the way custody has been arranged they won't be able to see their child again until after Christmas. And talking to that bereaved spouse who's doing the same thing, looking at the empty chair each and every day, knowing that as they move through Christmas and beyond, it will still be empty. Talking to that person who's just sick unto death, who's likely going to be spending time in one institution or another and their caregiver just tagging along, trying to find a place to get a little rest. What does comfort mean to them? Is it as simple as relief, having a specific comfort need met? Is it as, as, as superficial in a sense as just a life of ease, a state of calm, contentment, everything's fine with the world? We know comfort means more than that, even though it does mean relief, even though it does, it, it does mean ease, Comfort also points to something else. It points to transcendence. That is, being in a state where you can rise above your problems and you can rise above your pain. And in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, this word that we translate comfort shows up in some really important and illustrative places. Like in Job chapter 2, when Job's friends come alongside Job in the agony of his grief and his catastrophic loss of family and property and everything else, and they don't say a word. It's the smartest thing they ever do in the book of Job. And they are sit with him silently for a week, just 
sitting and not moving from that place of pain. Or when the widow Ruth is comforted by Boaz, it meant that she had access to water and shelter and protection. There was real material relational support that was involved there. Even in Psalm 23, when we famously say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they what? Comfort me. Same word. When we face those deep, dark spaces, it's a powerful word. And properly sort of lifted out of the text, out of its context, it really means something like to sigh or to groan or to lament. But when it's kind of put in proximity to someone else who's in pain, it in a sense means to sigh with, to groan with, to lament with. It's the perfect picture of empathy. And how does the Apostle Paul describe God's relationship to us, particularly in our prayer life? In, in Romans chapter 8, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That God comes alongside us when our words fail, when our understanding is limited, when we no longer can advocate for ourselves. God is speaking for us in the heart and in the mind and in the life of God. And that great spiritual truth is something we celebrate God making real to us in the flesh, in blood, in time, and in history in Jesus Christ. So we hear these words today from the prophet Isaiah, and I want to give you just a brief overview of who he was speaking to at this time. In 587 BCE, Jerusalem was wiped out, conquered, destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. It is a watershed experience in the life of the people Israel. And not only was the infrastructure wiped out, not only was the temple destroyed, but the best and the brightest, the leaders and the most educated were carted off to Babylon, and there they were impressed into service. As the prophets were speaking into these times, they made it abundantly clear that the destruction of the city, the exile to Babylon, all of this were not due first to Babylon's strength, but instead, this was the judgment of God. According to the prophets, Jerusalem should have known it was coming by the way they were living. And then we turn the page to Isaiah chapter 40, and we hear Isaiah declaring on behalf of God that the time of punishment and judgment is at an end, and Jerusalem's term is completed. Her penalty has been paid, and God says, comfort my people. Why should Jerusalem receive comfort? Those who serve time, those who serve time in prison, do not receive comfort on the day of their release. 
They get something like $40 and maybe a ride to the bus stop. They've been judged as deserving the penalty that they got. And now, upon their release, it's on them to prove that they were worthy of that release. That's how our society works, and that's how their society worked. But from this scriptural point of view, when we look at the likelihood that Israel would somehow relapse or fall back, the the likelihood of recidivism is actually very, very high. Because even the prophet says in verses 6 to 8, all people are like glass, uh, grass, their constancy is like a flower of the field. Their faithfulness is just so fragile. And it's quite likely, if we're pragmatic and honest, that the people of Jerusalem likely don't have a different future than a past. And if justice simply means people getting what they deserve, the old law of retribution, an eye for an eye, then the people of Jerusalem are not deserving of comfort, at least according to the norms of justice that's based on retribution. But instead, God insists, God commands that they be comforted. And the comfort takes a real shape. The first expression comes in verse 1, when God declares that they are God's people, my people, comfort my people. Even though the history of the people is not one of fidelity and faithfulness to God, God continues to identify with them. God does not overlook or ignore those behaviors, but at the same time, people should know always and forever God has not abandoned them. And secondly, in verse 2, God commands that that comfort come through tender speech. It's about compassion and not condemnation that would determine how Jerusalem would be treated. Third, it's also clear in verse 2 that there is a release of their debt to sin. Jerusalem has served her term, God says. The penalty has been paid. There's grace here. There's a release from that debt. And no amount of effort to try and satisfy that debt means as much as simply having it forgiven. That brings comfort. In verse 9, there's a command to Jerusalem not only to receive this gracious gift of forgiveness, but also to declare it. That their tidings that they experience are to be shared throughout the whole of the nation. Throughout the cities of Judah. The city that was judged and that was conquered, that was exiled, that is forgiven, is now the city that will be a witness to what God has done and what God is doing. Fifth, comfort looks like this. The people are to prepare a way for God's arrival because God is coming, not through the cities or the palaces, but instead from the desert, very much like they arrived in promised land after the exodus. It is God who is coming from those wilderness places where we least expect God to inhabit. And there, God is transforming the deserts into places of fruitfulness and green. Lastly, 
That comfort comes in the announcement of God's new future. Being released from your debt, from your prison, as it were, is not by itself a guarantee of a better tomorrow. But instead, it does open the door for something new. And it is in that place that verses 10 through 11 remind us that God continues to be at work in their midst, providing and protecting and guiding them with gentleness like a shepherd leads sheep. So if I were to summarize it this way, for our modern ears, now in your mind's eye, set down that picture of comfort and hold on to that picture of your pain. You're waiting, you're longing, the voids that are still unfilled. Be comforted by this. God identifies with you. God speaks tenderly to you. God forgives you. God calls on you to comfort others with the same comfort that's come to you. God comes close to you out of the desert and barren places of your life. And God is at work leading you to a new future, a new creation out of which, a new creation out of you and in which you can live and move. This is the way of peace, of peace with God and peace with one another, and peace with ourselves. And it is not something that we achieve. It is granted to us as a gift of God. Emily Dickinson taught us that hope is a thing with feathers, you know, that perches on the soul. And I suggested last week that hope for us, if it's going to matter in our lives, also has to show up with some muscle and sinew and sweat, and we find ultimately blood. And that everything we have learned about how God works in the world and in our lives is authenticated by Jesus' own life and his sacrificial death and the open door that the resurrection opens to all of the potential of what God may do next. God opened the door to Israel out of their captivity into promised land. God opened the door of a tomb that had sealed the crucified Jesus inside. And this is the same God we proclaim today who will lead you in peace and in renewal each and every day of your future. And Jesus knew when he was preparing to leave the presence of his disciples, when he would be gone from their sight, that they would be uh, just overwhelmed by the grief and the disorientation, not only of his death, but of his visible absence. And in the Gospel of John, he spends a lot of time praying for them and reassuring them for just that time when they were going to have to take everything they had learned from him and call it to mind and risk putting it to practice in the world. In John chapter 14, of course, he leaves them with a very special assurance. When they were going to face their dark days, he left them with peace. He didn't leave them with the, cons, you know, the, the, the absence of conflict or pain or suffering or anything like that, but he did give them the enduring assurance 
that in their profound isolation, in their grief or their pain or their suffering, ultimately that would not overcome the light of his presence and his work in their lives and in the church that gathers in his name. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the seal of that promise. All this I have spoken to you while I am still with you, he told them. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not let them be afraid. Well, about a week and a half, uh, December 21st to 22nd, we in the Northern Hemisphere will experience the longest night. The Earth on its axis is going to tip as far from the sun as it, as it can, safely. And it will begin turning again toward the sun. But on that long night, for generations and generations, we've recognized the powerful symbol of the almost kind of unendurable difficulty of the darkness. It seems never to end. On that night, I encourage you, as a bit of homework, leave a light on somewhere. A nightlight, maybe over your stovetop. Don't light a candle, because I still want you to sleep. But you leave that one light on through the darkest night. And remember all we have shared about comfort today. As that light burns, may it remind you of the peace that is granted to each and every one by our Lord. Our Lord who is celebrated as the one who is the light that shines in the darkness that the darkness never could overcome. Amen.